Hey, I'm happy you guys are here. Um, this is, this is going to be sort of a beginning of a little bit of a new series that we're going to go through, kind of unpack a couple things real quick. Um, the end of the year is always kind of unique for us. Obviously, as you guys look around, there's a lot of people that are gone, not just students that are gone, not just young people, but a lot of families are typically gone. It's one of the reasons why these next two weeks we're going to be doing what we call family services, which means that we have all of our kids in here that uh, are still around, families that have kids that are in here. So we welcome you guys in here. We realize that sometimes kids are a little bit uh, louder than, than, than adults, but that's okay. We're making allowances for that. Um, we, as Pastor James had mentioned as well, just you know, make sure that if you are a parent, you got your kids in here, uh, there's a couple options. You can have them sit with you. That's totally fine. Just make sure that you watch them. We also have a little area, as James mentioned, in the back to be able to color uh, if, if you want to have them do that as well. But you just have to realize you have to, to watch them yourself. And I think we might even have a television screen um, uh, little through video in some of the little areas in the back. You guys can also go in there if your kids kind of need to move around a little bit. We have some options for you guys. So um, the rest of us, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be getting into kind of a little brief new series uh, over the uh, next several weeks. Um, a couple reasons why we're going to be doing that is, um, like I said, because these next two weeks we have family services, which means everything sort of gets truncated. The messages are a little bit shorter. Um, the services are a little bit shorter just to accommodate Obviously, kids within here as well. Um, but it sort of also lent itself into kind of a nice little opportunity because as we are going through the Gospel of Mark, which we're going to be picking up in, in a few weeks as well, uh, we are getting into sort of the last final days of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark, which means it's um, really what we typically call the week of passion or the passion week. And so we were kind of wondering what would it look like if we were to sort of count down from Easter backwards to kind of finish up the rest of the Gospel Mark, and that's what we're going to do. So um, in the meantime, or in the interim, what we're going to do is we're going to start a new series today. Uh, we're calling it Signs of Life, and really the idea behind that is to really investigate and to understand various evidences of what it looks like when God shows up, when God moves, when God transforms, when God changes people's lives, when God begins to do what God does, there's signs to look at. There's various evidences that demonstrate or point to God's greatness. And what I want to do this morning is I want to basically kind of lay the, uh, the, the plan for this to try to understand this over the next few weeks as we begin to take a look at this. Today we're going to specifically be taking a look at the issue of the incarnation, which is really, and to be honest, the greatest sign of life. And to me, as we look around this world, this world is filled with death and violence and difficulty and hardship and tragedy. In a lot of ways, we can just sort of summarize, we live in a world surrounded by death. And it's easy to assume, uh, without being anchored in the Bible, that this is all that there is. And if we just simply look at this world around us as being nothing more than through a lens of death, then that leads to sort of a fa fatalism. In other words, why continue living? Is there any way to find joy? Is there any way to find peace or hope or life? Or why even really keep going on in life? And unfortunately, this time of year uh, with the holidays is sometimes one of the highest rates of depression in people throughout the year. And a lot of it's because it sort of brings things to a sharp edge when people begin to ask questions, what's life really all about? Is, is there any meaning to life beyond just simply the immediate and the here and now? And the answer that the Bible is going to give us is, yes, there's meaning to life. Yes, God is alive. Yes, God is doing great things. And one of the greatest evidences, the greatest signs that God is alive and God is bringing life into this world, first of all, we'll take a look at today, is the incarnation. 
that God sent his son into this world. So I'll give you a really quick outline over the next few weeks of what we'll be taking a look at. In fact, by the way, I would just encourage you again like I did last week. Um, if you guys are not, or if you are on Facebook and you're not kind of on the Calvary Slow page, uh, if you'd like to kind of find out the various types of information that we have going on, we keep our Facebook page uh, updated all the time. And so if, uh, if all you got to do, if, if you're on Facebook, just like our Calvary Slow Church page uh, and then you'll be able to kind of be in the loop of all the information that we have going on on there. We want you guys to be in the where. So um, what we're going to be doing is we'll be having um, uh, discussion notes that will be available. In fact, we'll have discussion notes today. We can put them up on the internet today. Um, they're all edited and ready to go. We'll have them available for you guys. And what we're encouraging you guys to do with those discussion notes is to, uh, to use them within your community groups. We realize that for a lot of you that are involved in community groups over the next couple weeks, you'll probably be taking a break because pretty much everything uh, around us on the Central Coast takes breaks over this period of time. Um, but if you're in a family, we're encouraging you to use the discussion notes within your family, within the family context. To begin, if you're a dad, if you, obviously when you have kids, use the questions in there to ask your kids uh, various topics about Jesus and the various topics that we'll be taking a look at. So I'll give you a really quick outline that we'll, what we'll be taking a look at. Today, like I mentioned, we'll be taking a look at the incarnation. In other words, that God became one of us. Next week, we'll take a look at the bigger concept of transformation, that God changes us, God transforms us, and God provides a means and a way whereby we are actually new people. Uh, first, or Second Corinthians chapter 5 describes the fact that those that are in Christ are new creations, in other words, the paradigm, the life of death that sort of plagues us is past. Uh, that Jesus has given us new life, that there is these evidences of life. Uh, finally, we'll begin to take a look at other topics like community and worship, in particular singing, love, generosity, reconciliation, and the subject matter of mission, how we live our lives with a particular purpose. So all of these things over the next few weeks we'll be taking a look at. Like I said, uh, all of this is outlined for you on the city. Uh, there's information that's available for you guys online so you can begin to sort of follow along. We'll have discussion guides that will go along with all of this, that will complement all of this to help you guys dig deeper into the scripture and the stuff that we'll be kind of covering over the next several weeks. But really want to encourage you to join in and be a part of that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to begin to kind of uh, take a look at the subject matter of the incarnation. And so what I want to begin by, preface all of this by, is the important thing of noting that what makes Christianity unique above and beyond all other religions is that all of the religions basically, for the most part, start out with a gifted teacher or someone who is an enlightened one, someone who knows certain information, someone who has sort of attained a certain level of knowledge. And this enlightened person or this teacher basically comes along and then gives a set of rules or set of standards or principles to live by. And most other religions throughout the world basically say to the degree that you follow the standards or live according to the conduct of the enlightened one or the teacher or the person who has been given this special revelation, a special insight, to the degree that you follow the principles and the standards of this particular person, then you will have life. You'll live. And yet what Christianity basically does is it turns that entire paradigm upside down. And Christianity, rather than starting with a teacher, Christianity actually starts with a savior. Christianity basically is the exact opposite. Rather than starting with a teacher who gives good advice in which we live according to to find life, Christianity says it begins with a savior who lives the life that we should have lived, 
dies the death that we should have died and rescues us. And then what Christianity does is it basically says that the Savior, once he rescues you, then he teaches you how to live. So there is an element in which we are taught how to live. There is the reality in which there are principles and ideas and standards of conduct in which Christians follow. But the important thing is that that's not what saves us. What rescues us is not living according to a particular code of conduct. What rescues us is not living according to the teachings of a particular gifted person. What rescues us is a savior. And this is what Christianity professes and confesses and states. And this is what it begins with. And what we're kind of entering into now is what's historically called as Advent, or the time in which Jesus comes into this world, or another word which we typically use is the word incarnation. The word incarnation basically comes from two words, which basically means to come in the flesh. Carne, all right, if any of you like Mexican food, like me, carne asada, right, it's meat, right, it's the idea, same idea, you're like, that's kind of weird to compare that. Well, it's the same word, the idea of meat, coming in the flesh. Jesus, God, comes in the flesh, comes in human form, and this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. He comes with a distinct purpose. So what I want to do right now is I want to begin to read a couple passages for us, and then we'll begin to take a look at this, and we'll wrap this up, keep things short as I promised. That's my Christmas gift to you guys. So Matthew chapter 1, I want to read a couple of verses to you guys, and again, because this is sort of kid-friendly I made the slides kid-friendly, so uh, you're welcome again. My second gift to you guys. So I'm going to read these to you. uh, Matthew chapter 1, and kids, you can just enjoy the nice little pictures. If you're too young to read, you can watch those, and if you're old enough to read, you can read the passage. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, we pick it up with the story of the life of Jesus. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when Mary, his mother, or when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is sort of the meditation I want to focus on today. It's just simply three words. God with us. Because really in summary, these three words sort of launch the basis of all of the world's hope. In other words, God has not abandoned us. God has not left us without. God has not basically just relegated this world to doom. God has not just simply written off this world to its own course of destruction. And God has not written you off in your course of destruction, in your sin, in your path of unfaithfulness, in your path of brokenness, in your path of shame and hardship and difficulty, that God has not just simply abandoned you. This is really good news. And this is what we talk about in this time of year. And this is what the word incarnation means. 
is that God is not just simply out there, beyond, in an ivory tower, distant, far away, but that God has actually drawn near. He's come to us. And this is what I want to focus on. I want to take a look at those three specific words, and then I'm done. The first thing I want to take a look at is just simply the word God. Because again, this is a passage that basically indicates who Jesus is and what God was doing. The greatest sign or evidence of life was that God basically comes. This is an amazing story to declare, an amazing statement that Jesus is indeed, in reality, himself. He is God. This is really important. This is what the Bible basically confesses and describes. That Jesus was not just simply a really good teacher. He was not just a prophet. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. But not just. He was more than that. The Bible actually describes him as being God. And what we see with Jesus being God is that this is not God, or this is not a man becoming God. This is not a man who was really good that earned his way into a state or a level of being God. But what we see is what one theologian described as what happened is deity added to himself humanity. This is what happened. That God added to himself a human form, a human shape. That God became man. God became one of us. This is unbelievable. This is what the declaration of the gospel writers is basically declaring. And throughout the New Testament, this is what Jesus' story is all about. Not just a prophet, not just a gifted teacher, not just somebody that lived in Jerusalem, not just, a, not just somebody that went around talking about God, but that he indeed was himself God. And so what we see, for example, uh, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, we see an example in which the deity, which... The deity basically just means the godness, that Jesus is indeed God, is basically put on display, that we see in evidence or display or picture or sign that Jesus is more than just a guy. He is indeed God. And the story is when Jesus was with his disciples and they were in a storm, and in this particular passage, Jesus speaks to the storm and the storm calms. And this is sort of written in a subtle way in which the gospel writers basically wants to point out and kind of cause us to ask the question. The question kind of should be naturally asked like this. Who speaks to creation and listens? Okay? Immediately, that would take any reader who is familiar with even the first chapter of the Bible all the way back to the story of creation. Where in the beginning it says God. God created the heavens and the earth. And that God created the heavens and the earth simply by speaking. God spoke and creation moved. God spoke and creation obeyed. This is amazing because none of us have the power or have the ability to speak to things like that and make them happen. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. We're not God. But what we see with Jesus is he did. He spoke to creation and creation listened. Creation obeyed. And this is the gospel writer's way of basically pointing out that Jesus is more than just a teacher, more than just a gifted preacher. He is indeed himself God, that God is with us. The Jewish people had this great hope that one day God would rescue his people. And we see evidences of this throughout. 
uh, the Old Testament, like for example, throughout the time of the Exodus, when God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. And so the picture was that God was the one that did this, but that God actually delivered the people of Israel through a person or an agency, that God appointed a person to do this. And so oftentimes Jews, Jews would kind of view the fact that when God is going to show up and do something, oftentimes he shows up and does something through an appointed person. This could be a prophet, this could be a king, but that God oftentimes has an agent by which he does something. But what we see here in the New Testament is that God doesn't just simply appoint a prophet, he doesn't just simply appoint a king, he doesn't just simply appoint someone who's gifted, but that in the person of Jesus, that God himself comes into our world, into our suffering, and into our pain and difficulty to move, to work, to operate. That God himself was that, the one that was working through Jesus, that it was Jesus ultimately representing God and as God himself, doing for Israel, for the whole world, what Israel and the whole world could not do for itself, which is to save itself. That God was moving, God was working. So the reality is when we begin to take a look at this important picture of God being the one who is with us, it should really kind of raise the question, then what should be the appropriate response? If this is indeed God with us, then how should we respond to Jesus if he is indeed God? Well, here's the point. If, for example, someone in your life is a really gifted teacher or mentor, right, and you guys have someone in your life that you can think of that was a really uh, strategic or important person in your life, they might have been a teacher, a family member that you really looked up to, uh, someone like that, raise your hand, coach, that you really looked up to, right? The appropriate response to give to someone that was a good teacher, teacher or a gifted mentor or someone that you really uh, had, they had a lot of impact upon your life, the appropriate response is respect. You honor that person. You respect that person. You're thankful for that person. And you might say that or communicate that to them. That's the appropriate response to give to someone who's a good teacher. But the reality is, is that if Jesus is just simply a good teacher, then that would be the appropriate response. But if Jesus is more than just simply a good teacher, if he is indeed God, then just simply honoring him or respecting him or admiring him would be an insufficient response. In other words, it wouldn't go far enough. It doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go broad enough. It's too shallow. It's too limited. If indeed Jesus is God, who came to us, then the only appropriate and only proper response would be that response which we see actually in Matthew chapter 2. I think I have a slide up here. I'll show it to you. Another picture. Matthew chapter 2 verse 10. We see these were guys, they were called wise men. They come to Jesus. And by the way, the wise men did not come to Jesus in the manger scene. Right? The wise men came probably at least two, maybe three years later. So if you have a manger scene in your house, probably the appropriate way of designing your manger scene is to take your wise men and take them out of the manger scene next to the cows and put them in the kitchen or put them some way or somewhere far away because they would not come to Jesus until a few years later. All right? So these wise men come to Jesus, and this story, as you can see right here, is already kind of wrong, but... Um, Look, by the way, this is called the Brick Testament, all right? So if you've got kids and you're like, I want to go find the Brick Testament, all I'm going to simply say is 
use discretion, all right? There are some PG-13 scenes in this, like PG-13 scenes of Lego figures? Yes, yes, where they don't have their clothing on. But you're like, what, really? They're all yellow. Anyways, <laughs> let me read the passage to you because this gives the appropriate response of what we see with these guys, all right? These are the wise men that came from afar, and they know who Jesus is. They've somehow divinely understood that Jesus is not just simply a good teacher. He's not just simply a good mentor, but that he is indeed perhaps something far more, far greater than anybody on this planet has ever seen, that he is indeed God. So this is their response. This is, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we're told that the response from these guys was simply to worship Jesus. If indeed Jesus is God, as the Bible declares he to be, then to just simply admire him is not an appropriate response. The only true, only appropriate response is to basically give the entirety of our lives over to him. The word that the Bible describes for that is worship. We give him, we ascribe to him worth that's due to his name. That's the appropriate response. The second thing we'll take a look at is not just simply God with us, but now we'll take a look at the word with, God with us. What I love about this, or the emphasis upon this particular word, is that he's not distant. This is not a picture of God who's far off, remote. This is not the picture of like a father who may be there physically, but emotionally, he's detached. Maybe some of us have come from families where we have had a dad, and dad works really hard, he pays the bills, he takes care of the stuff around the house, but when he's there, he's not emotionally there. Kids sit down next to him, they want to talk to him. Maybe when you were a kid, this was your dad, you went and talked to him, and your dad was not there. Your dad was remote, he was someplace else. Or maybe sometimes you can have a dad that was really good, he was emotionally there, but physically not there a lot, because he had to work, or there were certain things or hindrances that kept him from being able to physically be able to be there. This is not the picture of a God that is remote, or distant, or emotionally separated. This is the picture of a God that actually draws near. He's with us. He's come near. He's come close to us. Now, in a lot of ways, this is sort of a terrifying thought, especially if you were a Jew in the Old Te- from the Old Testament, reading your Bible. Anytime, for the most part, when you would understand the fact if God were to ever remotely come close to his people, this was terrifying. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Again, I got a nice little slide I'll show you. Throughout the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Genesis, when God showed up to Jacob, God shows up as a wrestling angel, and he begins to wrestle with Jacob, this powerful, mighty being. In the book of Exodus, God shows up to Moses in a flaming bush that's burning with fire, that's being consumed. When God showed up to his people Israel in the book of Exodus, we're told that during the day, God showed up to his people by this big, large, huge pillar, billowing pillar of smoke, all right? I, in my mind, I think of like an, an atomic cloud, right? This big mushroom cloud, this big, terrifying, scary cloud. In the night, when God showed up, God would show up in this pillar of fire, this big, blazing, burning, heat-generating fire. 
at the end of the day, it's this picture that God is terrifying. God is fearful. God is somebody that we should recognize. We don't mess with God. We don't play games with God. We submit and we surrender. We honor this being. In some ways, I think about the idea of like an ocean. I love the ocean. Uh, in fact, I just went down there a couple days ago, and the waves are really big, really big waves. And I had actually gone to Avila, and typically the waves are never big at Avila, but this particular day the waves are really big. So I walked out on the pier. I went under the pier. There's kind of like this little walkway you can go under the pier, and there's this sort of boat launch on the bottom of the pier that you can go out underneath there. And so I was standing on this boat launch, and the waves, when they would come up, were just like inches. I mean, the water would actually, big waves, come up and would kind of get my feet wet. But it felt kind of amazing because on the one hand, I'm like standing on top of these waves totally fearless. I'm not afraid of the waves. Um, But if you were to take me and put me in the middle of a tsunami, all right, if you were to take somebody that might be intrigued by the ocean, by the power of the ocean, by the power of the waves, there's a radical difference between sitting on a bluff looking at big 25-foot, 30-foot waves and watching surfers get towed into waves like that and actually being in the middle of a tsunami. It's a big difference. And the reality is the thought of God to a mind of a Jew being remote. In some ways, even though God oftentimes throughout the Old Testament showed up amongst his people as being this terrifying God, the thought for a Jew that God is, is out there brought some level of comfort. It's one of the reasons why when God oftentimes showed up, oftentimes it was preceded by an angel that comes and he gives this message, don't be afraid. Why? Because every time God shows up, people drop their bowels. It's absolutely terrifying. God's there, God's here. This is terrifying. This is not really good news because that means we will be consumed by this God. Don't be afraid is what the angel would oftentimes say. This is one of the reasons why it's like we, we like powerful things as long as they're managed and contained. We like sitting on, the, on a bluff watching the waves because we know that's different than being in the waves, being tossed to and fro. But what we see with Jesus coming into this world, the incarnation, that God has come to us, that it's God with us, What's the most unbelievable picture of Jesus in the incarnation is how he comes to us. Take a look at the next slide. (laughs) This almost is is embarrassing to even show this slide because it looks silly. But the point of the matter is, is that God in Jesus, through Jesus, comes to us in the form of a baby. Not in a fire, not in a whirlwind, not in an earthquake, not in a volcano, not in a terrifying billow of smoke, not in a terrifying billow of fire, but in the form of a child, a baby, an infant, completely, totally dependent upon his mom and dad. An infant who soiled himself, an infant that needed to be fed, an infant that needed to be held and carried and nurtured. The point of the matter is and this is what's absolutely astounding, is that Jesus, God comes into this world among us, to us, not in a terrifying being in which we are to fear, but in a humble, vulnerable child, which actually draws us near. This is amazing. 
some of us, throughout our lives, we've had the privilege and the honor of maybe like meeting someone that's like a celebrity, right? Or maybe a professional athlete or somebody that's really good at their trade or really good at their vocation or really good in a particular area of gifting, maybe a musician or something like that. And if you've ever been in around somebody like that, and to some degree, you're kind of in awe of them, when you get into the presence, you're kind of like, you're like shaking, you're a little bit like taken back to some degree. But here's the most unbelievable thing, that when God comes to us, he doesn't come sort of with this air of, power and might. He's not coming as a power player to somehow push upon us his might and his power. He comes to us humbly, vulnerable, approachable. This is unbelievable. This is the picture of our great God, that he comes to us. He comes with us, and this is what we see. The final thing is that we see not only God, not only with, but we also finally see that he's us. Again, like I said, Jesus is not primarily a teacher, a prophet, or even for that matter, an example. He is all of those things. He is a prophet. He is a teacher. He is an example. But primarily what we see with Jesus is he comes as a savior, but he comes as a savior as a human being. He comes as one of us. He comes into our world, steps into our pain. This is an amazing picture of who Jesus is. There is an essayist, the writer, her name was Dorothy Sayers, and I want to read you a quotation from her. She actually had written a lot of like novels on like, um, um, like crime scenes and stuff like that. And she's kind of an, an amazing writer, but she had written something. Next slide, I want to read this to you. It's kind of amazing. She had written sort of this, this little essay on the incarnation. Here's what she had to say. She said, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God allowed us to fall into a condition of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, that he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Just pause and think about that for a second. Now, for whatever reason, God says, look, humanity has sinned, humanity has fallen. As a part of that fallenness, man has sort of taken upon himself certain great profound limitations. Man has suffered, man has become limited, man is now subject to sorrow and death. And what he says is that, This God, as great and as mighty and as powerful as this God, Yahweh, this being is, he has the courage and the honesty to actually drink his own medicine. This is what the incarnation is, that he comes into our world and he goes on, or she goes on and she says this, God has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, lack of money, and worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. Some of us live in families where we're like, they're irritating, right? We're, we're coming up to Christmas, and just like Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, that means that we have to spend time with people that maybe we're not super excited about. Like, ah, uh, yeah, they are irritating people, right? Or they're not the best people to hang out with. Or actually, maybe they think the same thing about you, but the point of the matter is, is that, there is these massive problems that we oftentimes face and endure. She goes on to point out that we have to work hard. Anybody have a job that finds it tedious, difficult, hard, troubling sometimes? Maybe you work a lot, you don't get paid a lot. Maybe there's a lot of limitations to that. There's a tendency maybe for you to feel a little bit of a sense of entitlement, like I deserve more, I deserve better, 
I'm not advancing as fast or as quickly as I thought I should. Sometimes it feels like there's a sense of humiliation, defeat, despair. Ultimately, the greatest thing that all of us will one day face is the reality, horrifying reality of death. And you know what? The incarnation teaches us, God with us, is that God steps into our world. That means steps into our humiliation. Jesus was humiliated. Steps into our world of difficulty. Jesus suffered. Jesus came into this world. He he knew what it meant to feel hunger. He knew what it meant to be betrayed. He knew what it meant to suffer loss. He knew what it meant to love and have people turn their backs on him. He knew what it meant to have people gossip about him. He knew what it meant to be offered things, great things, and yet knowing he can't take those things in the particular route that they were being offered to him. He knows the loss that every single one of us suffers and feels and endures. And this should be one of the most profound and amazing things because the reality is is that if you've ever gone through something that's difficult and hard or tragedy or suffering, you know that one of the most blessed things that you can have come alongside you is someone who's gone through the same thing with you or someone who's gone through the same thing prior to you. You can glean from them. You can learn from them. You don't feel as alone because you feel as if you're going through this thing in life with a companion, with somebody that knows the language of suffering and pain that you yourself are going through. And this is what we see in these three words, God with us. So I want to finish with a couple thoughts. So really, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? That God came into this world, God took upon himself a body, God became one of us, there's three things I'll throw out and kind of finish with, just kind of to meditate on, to think about. The first thing is, I wrote, that material matters. Matter matters, in other words. This world, it matters. Like, God didn't come into this world as a spirit being. That there's a specific reason why God actually took upon himself flesh and blood. And why when Jesus died, he rose again in a physical body. Because the reality is, the Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching is that God actually cares about this physical world. Contrary to the way oftentimes some Christianity typically goes, is that God is actually disgusted with this world. God's disgusted with uh, this physical world, and God will one day rid this universe of it, and it will be some form of spirit being. That's not true. That God actually cares about this physical world. This physical world in which we live in, though, is sick. It has a disease. It's broken. For us, you and I, as human beings, the disease that we suffer from is sin and rebellion. For the rest of this world, the disease that the world suffers from is a curse. Romans 8 describes that. But that God's intention is to not simply rid the world of the world, but God's ultimate desire is to transform this world, the brokenness, the sickness of this world, to get rid of the sickness without getting rid of the world to get rid of the sin without completely destroying the person. And the way that God did this is he took upon himself flesh and blood, came into this world. And so what this means is that this world, even though it's still sick, even though it's underweight, it's waiting under uh, this great hope that one day Jesus will return and he will restore all things. Until then, what that means is that if you're renewed, if you're a Christian, That what you do in this world matters. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, that matters. Being a parent matters. Getting a bride, getting a husband, 
That matters. Loving your spouse, serving your wife, serving your husband, serving your kids, that matters. If you're an artist and you somehow use notes and you arrange notes, take them out of the form of chaos and bring them into order and make music and harmony, symphony, that actually matters. That reflects God. If you take raw materials like wood and brick and stone and you arrange them and you build things with construction and you do stuff like that, that actually matters because all of that reflects God. That this world we live in actually matters. God is in the process of restoring all things. We get to join with him to be a part of that work of restoration. We ourselves won't be the ones that fully, ultimately restore it. But that means that until Jesus comes again and he does the final work of restoration, that we play a part in being able to use our hands, our gifts, our lives, our callings, our vocation to play an active part in that restorative act that God's doing. The second thing is that comfort is available. Because we have a God that is not just simply up in heaven shouting orders down to us to tell us, coach us through how to deal with suffering and hardship, but that instead we have a God that comes into our world, suffers alongside of us, suffered with us, suffered for us. We have great comfort in that. You're not alone. You're not alone in your pain. You've not been forgotten. God's with you. He's with us. He cares about you. He loves you. This is the most unbelievable picture of all this. The third and final thing is that healing actually comes through vulnerability. This is the way that God set the pattern, the prototype. That healing, true healing comes through being vulnerable. This is amazing. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I've, I've kind of recently been on this kick of studying revolutions. I love just studying history of revolutions. Been kind of getting my hands on as much revolutionary type history content that I can find. The interesting thing is that in almost every single revolution, even revolutions that start out and they're like, you know, this is going to be a peaceful revolution. Yeah, right. Until the wrong guy gets in power and then turns it into sort of a violent protest. Almost all revolutions at some point become full of uh, a vindictive type language, uh, angry type uh, you know, rhetoric, or sometimes guns or weapons. But the reality of what we see with Jesus and the way that God goes about restoring this world is not by hostile takeover, not by destroying evildoers, but instead by being destroyed in the place of and for evildoers. In other words, Jesus absorbs, takes upon himself their guilt, their shame, our guilt, our shame, and this becomes the means by which healing comes. Now think about this in sort of a, a natural way. If you're at odds with somebody, and let's say there's been sort of this family feud going on for a long time, and maybe you have right justification to be angry or to be upset with somebody that did something wrong against you. You have every right to be angry, every right to be vindictive, every right, at least in your own justification, to have that attitude that you have towards them. But what would happen if rather than continuing that attitude of anger and frustration and violence and vindictiveness, instead, what would happen if you actually became like Jesus, vulnerable, humble, 
And rather than fighting and pushing and attacking, instead you absorbed. And rather than going out with words of aggression, you went out with words of saying, I'm sorry I've had this attitude against you for so many years. I'm sorry. What would happen? The likelihood of some form of healing coming from that is actually greater than you coming with, armed with your arguments as to why you're right, they're wrong, and you continue that cycle. You're not pushing back the evil, you're just simply recycling it. It just keeps the evil going. And what Jesus does by coming into this world as a vulnerable, humble child, coming to absorb the wrath, coming to absorb the shame, the pain, the hurt, the sorrow, and then says, all who follow me live like me. What he was basically saying is that this is how the world and the pains and the sorrows and the hurt in this world really begin to get healed. This is how relationships are reconciled. This is how people are transformed. It's not by fighting anger or aggression with aggression. I mean, you can coerce people. You can force people. If you've got great power, you can somehow coerce the argument towards your goal, towards your end. If you're a gifted rhetorician, you can somehow work the argument in your way. But lovers also have the ability to change circumstances, not by rhetoric, but by compassion. And that's what we see with Jesus. He comes as our vulnerable child, and he breaks our hearts. And the natural response is we wave the white flag, and we surrender. We say, like the wise men, that he's king, and we worship him, and we honor him. This is the season that we enter into. And I want to finish with just closing with a couple songs of worship. I want to close by us just sort of meditating, considering who Jesus is, and declaring his praises, his greatness. I'm going to have Scott come on up. He'll close us off in a couple songs. Before we do, what I want to do is I want to just take a moment or two um, one of the Psalms we read a few weeks ago talks about how when we gather, we declare the praises of God. So part of worship oftentimes can be us verbally proclaiming or verbally declaring the greatness of God. And what I'd like to do is just take a few moments for us as a, as a body, as a church family, to do a couple things. To first of all start off by just declaring the praises of God, declaring the mighty praises of God. And what that will look like is, is us in this room, just sort of verbally communicating, speaking out loud. So that, say, if you're sitting over there, people over there can hear you, you know, so you can say it loud enough, obviously, to declare the praises of God, to speak them forth. And then Scott will close us into a couple songs of worship, but also, too, at the same time, to partake of communion. We have communion in the back, and there's three little areas back there. And I really want to encourage you that as we partake of communion, two things. One is that the Bible says don't take it in an unworthy manner, which means... Really, what we do is we take the communion away, which we recognize what it stands for, recognizes that it stands for the fact that because God came into this world, took upon flesh and blood for us, that he himself had a body, a body like bread, which can actually be broken. But because Jesus' body was broken, this becomes the basis by which we're saved. But it welcomes us into a family. So the second thing of taking communion is let's take it together as a family. I mean, some of you guys, you have families here. Take it together as a family. Maybe some of you are part of a community group. 
the idea if you're a Christian, you can take it alone, that's fine. But the real picture of it is that we take it together as a family. So what I would suggest is we partake of communion is to take it together as a family. If you're a dad, you can lead your children. You can just pray a prayer over them, lead them into it. If you're involved in a community group, do it as a community group perhaps. Uh, if there's people here and you notice maybe someone taking a loan, maybe invite them. Hey, would you like to take communion with us? Let's just pray together. We'll partake of communion together. We do it together as a family. And Scott will close this up in a few songs of worship. So I want to I pray, and then I want to launch us into just declaring some of the praises of God. Okay? So what I'm going to ask for as soon as I'm done praying is for you guys to just declare, speak out the things in which you see about God that are praiseworthy. Just shout them out. Say them loud enough so we can hear it, so we can celebrate with you. Sound good? God, we just want to give you thanks for your greatness, for your love, and we welcome you, and we're thankful, Jesus, that you have come into this world, into this place, into our hearts, that you're alive, you're living, you're powerful, you're mighty, and yet at the same time, God, you're simultaneously loving, caring, compassionate, nurturing, that you're the God that's here. So we invite you, God, even right now, to just move in this place, to loosen our lips, God, to help us to think, let our minds be fertile in terms of thoughts and words and adjectives to describe your greatness. So God, I pray even right now that in this place, this would be filled with declarations of your greatness, declarations of your praise.